people want a way to influence people and raise their kids and train their dogs and interact with their employees or their employer or their colleagues or neighbors in a positive, happy way. Like very few people are like, no, nope, I'd just rather kind of be a jerk and mean about it. That, that's a pretty rare, that's like frustration, like that expression in dog training that forces the absence of real power. Like if people are like shoving their dog to get them in the car, yanking on their collar, if they could just say up and have their dog go up, they would do that, but they don't know how to get there. Hi, welcome back to Telltale Dog, the podcast. I'm your host, certified dog trainer, Elizabeth Silverstein. And I have with me today, Karen B. London, PhD, who is a certified applied animal behaviorist and certified professional dog trainer. She specializes in working with dogs with serious behavior issues, including aggression. And Karen writes the animal column for the Arizona Daily Sun and is an adjunct professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at Northern Arizona University. She's written six books so far about dogs, including the newest one, Treat Everyone Like a Dog, How a Dog Trainer's Worldview Can Improve Your Life. And the one I wanna to touch on today, Love Has No Age Limit, Welcoming an Adopted Dog into Your Home. Hi, Karen. How are you? Great. And I'm so glad to be here. Yeah. Thanks for being here. This is awesome. I know we kind of connected when I had you for a consult for one of my clients. So it's been fun watching your journey and seeing what you've, what you've been doing. You've been doing a lot. Yes. I guess like most people uh, that do anything with dogs, there's always things to be done, which is, you know, maybe a little bad, but mostly good. <laughs> yeah. And it, that's, I think what makes our field so exciting sometimes there's just so much to do and learn and and grow in yeah I agree I I enjoy all the work I do different kinds of things writing and teaching and working with dogs it's just all different and I like that when I started this kind of shift into this new career I just didn't really want to be at a desk all day and now I don't have to be yeah that's fantastic it's always nice to actually get to be with the animals I love that about my work too well, I wanted to start off, Karen, with where did your love of dogs begin? I guess I have the same answer that a lot of people do, which is I have no memories before loving dogs. I just always was drawn to them. Um, one of my earliest memories with dogs was I remember when I was three years old, um, my family lived in Palo Alto for a year. My dad was on sabbatical and I used to go across the street to the neighbor's dog. It was this old English sheepdog, and I used to lift up its fur over its eyes, like use my finger to lift it up so that I could see its eyes, which by the way, is not a good idea because you're getting right in a dog's face and they could bite you. But I did not know that. And no, none of the adults around me knew it. And I used to go over there and talk to the dog and the dog and I really loved each other. And interestingly, I used to think, oh my gosh, that dog was just so nice not to bite me. I don't know how that happened. But now I think maybe that dog really appreciated that I lifted the fur up so it could actually see the dog tended to gravitate towards me, according to my parents. And so that's sort of my earliest memory. My aunt and uncle had great Danes, Drinan and Friendly, that I remember doing training with and just loving them. I didn't grow up with dogs myself. And every time I went to someone's house, I was really interested in their dog. And I do remember occasionally being told like, um, maybe you should play with your friend a little bit uh, in balance with the dog. It's like, okay. So I just always loved them. When did you realize that you could make it a career? Oh, you know, that was so much later. I went to graduate school. I was, I'm really interested in social insects. The thing that I'm interested in them with like wasps, which I studied for my PhD is that they are capable of hurting each other a lot, but they don't very often. There's inhibition. I mean, 
and same any social animal that especially that's predatory probably has weapons like dogs and wolves and of course people you know there can be a lot of killing but there's actually not as much as there could be I, I find the inhibition quite interesting and I was in graduate school working with wasps and I ended up teeing a class by Patricia McConnell PhD the well-known behaviorist called a human and animal relationships biological and philosophical issues and I just got really interested in it. And I started volunteering in her dog training classes. And eventually she hired me to see her aggression cases. She trained me to do it and see her aggression cases. She hired me full-time as, as an internship and then a full-time employee to work aggression cases that I realized it was a career <laughs> possibility. Oh, so that was, you know, in my late twenties, early thirties that I began doing dog work full-time. Okay. So yeah, I'm a little bit later too. I started my dog career when I was 30, but not quite in the way that you did it. So you have a PhD. What did you get your bachelor's in? My bachelor's degree was in biology. I was at UCLA and then I did my master's and PhD in zoology with a I studied animal behavior, but the department was zoology. So when you were a teenager, whenever you made that decision, it's a big decision to make kind of that for the rest of your life, what drew you towards insects? Well, I was, let's see, I must've been 20 when I got interested in insects. Uh, I went to college at UCLA and people would ask me, what are you going to major? And I said, I don't know what I'm going to major in, but I know it won't be science, which sadly is a little bit just the science experience I had in high school was, you know, some was good, but some wasn't. So I, I went to school and I, I didn't start majoring in biology until I did a field course in Costa Rica which I did because I was interested in being a writer. And I thought that if I wanted to be a writer, I should definitely travel. I had a roommate from El Salvador who really convinced me to do it, even though I you know, was looking forward to taking some English classes the next semester. So I went to Costa Rica for this field studies and got really interested in termites and their pheromone chemical communication. And then I realized I wanted to do it, uh, work with insects. I, I was actually not, I didn't like insects as a kid growing up. I was like terrified of them and found them really gross and disturbing. So you just never know <laughs> where you're going to end up. It's so true. And it really is the people we meet along the way, isn't it? True. Yeah, so true. It's, it, I can sort of chart the path, like meeting Trisha McConnell is huge, meeting Myra, my El Salvadorian roommate, Dr. Greenfield and Dr. Nairns, who taught my field course in, in Costa Rica. And one of them studied frogs and one studied grasshoppers. Uh, but just, yeah, it's so it's sort of random. The slightest change, I could have ended up doing some totally different thing. Although looking back, I see all the clues that I always wanted to work with dogs. It's always interested in animal behavior. I always liked working with people as well. So some animal jobs, you're really focused on the animals. My job, you know, my clients are the people to help them with their dogs. So there's like inhibition, you said, is kind of a common thread between from insects to mammals. What are some of the other similarities? Because I, I never would have thought that an interest in insects would lead you to working with dogs and people. Right. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, people often ask me like, how did you go from wasps to dogs? But when I was um, TAing the class with Patricia McConnell, the class was just a lot about how it was a lot about demand. There was a lot of sections about it, about domestic animals and their association with people. And there is an evolutionary history between say people and dogs and you know other domestic animals. And when I was working on my master's degree, I was studying a nesting association between two species of wasps. There was one species that would found their nest first and then the other species would come in and nest sort of right next door, but they're called satellite nests, but not every one of the original nests had that other species there. So I'm interested in species that live together. 
and you know, dogs and people live together. And then I'm really interested. My PhD was on defensive behavior of tropical social wasps. So you know how they defend themselves. And you know, a lot of dogs that are aggressive are defending themselves. And so when she, when I learned that she worked with aggression, I realized that her work with dogs and just really matched up with what my theoretical interests were, but it's just a different species. So you know, lots of people that maybe they might study bird foraging behavior, and then they'd study fish foraging behavior. It's a different species, but it's the same kind of questions. Like how do these different species connect and get along? And how do the individuals within a group you know, work together socially? So it's the transition from wasps to dogs sounds kind of nutty, but from a point of view of a theoretical context, it all kind of makes sense. And I am very fond of saying that I love my switch from wasps to dogs because they are less aggressive and much easier to work with. Yes. <laughs> you can get your hands on them in a fun way. Definitely. Yeah. Well, so that's really fascinating to me too. I just did the aggression conference and oh. some of the, yeah, it was, it was really fascinating. And, and one of the things that popped up in some of the new, like, was it bat 2.0 came out of an interest in rock climbing and belaying. And it's really fascinating to think about the more your worldview opens, as you were finding with traveling, the more that you can bring to the table when you are doing your work anyways, and just different ways of looking at things. Like when we confine ourselves to, you know, never would have thought wasps to dogs, but there's an interesting, really fascinating aspect of that, that that can help you look at things a little bit more creatively than you would have otherwise. I completely agree. And I, I really feel strongly that when people have one perspective that they bring to something completely different, an interdisciplinary approach to science or psychology or any kind of work writing. Um, and my husband is a scientist who has, does a lot of interdisciplinary work. And I, I really feel like that's where the magic happens. Like you're looking at things in a new way. There's tons of examples of like a, a whole way of looking at the world in the field of economics has been applied to looking in the field of, of animal behavior. And it's, you know, a really classic example of this game theory that, that it was originally in economics and moved to, to animal behavior and other aspects of biology. And I mean, so many times when people have a completely different perspective, something amazing happens because they have a whole skill set that others don't have. So, I mean, Grisha's work with, with bat and bat 2.0, I mean, I use her systems. I, I've done a little rock climbing, but I've done more work like belaying dogs with that system. And I mean, I think it's great because it really is like, how do we make physics work for us? And rock climbing, that's pretty important for, you know, not, you know, dying. And with dogs, it's pretty important for just safety and enjoyment. And so many people will use her belaying system or various ones of her, just her carabiners and ropes and um, rings to make it so they can walk a dog that previously wasn't getting to go out like that. It gives so much confidence. Although I must say the first time I tried it, it was like, okay, I'm going to need to practice this a little bit. Took a little just, you know, like anything, some practice to get the physicality of it down, even though I've done a little rock climbing. Yes. And that whole talk too, was really reminding me of the skill set that comes with training and learning to be a dog trainer. And I've been thinking a lot about the different levels that are involved. So like with you and Patricia McConnell at the PhD level, there's going to be a different level there for learning and understanding than someone who maybe just has a certification like me. And then with the different skill levels of different methods of working with dogs with aggression, there's going to be different skill levels and practice on things. And I know for me, I kind of want to push to the next thing and, and, and learn the next thing. And there's so many things that just come with time and education and practice. And that's okay as well. Oh, definitely. And I feel like, uh, I mean, I consider myself and I am both a behaviorist and a trainer. There are a lot of behaviorists. There are a lot of trainers. There are some that are both, and there's always some overlap, but I feel like the 
skills I have as a behaviorist come from my academic background, but my training skills come from training dogs, like, you know, actually doing it, uh, you know, under some, you know, mentorships and help. But I feel like the physical skills of training are sometimes not given the respect that they're due. Like when I see somebody working like a very challenging high arousal or aggressive dog or both um, and managing it safely with, you know, whatever equipment they have and like quick reaction time and making physics work for them. I'm really impressed by that. When I hear someone presenting a new idea from an active perspective, I'm really impressed by that. And I'm very aware that these overlap, but they're distinct. Um, and I, I would love for more trainers to learn more about behavior. And I think largely the training community is really good about an interest in that. And I would love for more behaviorists to work more physically with, with dogs. I think there's great value. And like, I'm incredibly proud of both of my skill sets in that regard. And I like the way they work together. Like when I go and see a client and I'm doing a behavioral consult and then they need some training, I do that too. And I think sometimes people refer and that can work, but I love just being able to do it all in one. Not that I don't ever refer, of course I do, but I think it's important to be able to tell people like, oh, I want you to do this with your dog when you're out on a walk. Here, let's go on a walk and I'll show you how and then have you try it. I think it's helpful. And I have noticed there's some interesting um, aspects to learning to be a trainer. So if you just learn the, the learning theory up front and you don't get your hands on dogs, you're going to have a different journey than someone who gets their hands on dogs and then learns the learning theory. And ideally, they both work together. So it's really it's one of the, the most fascinating things for me has been realizing that people and myself included before I became a trainer, kind of think dogs are easy and simple. And then you, you start to dip your toes in and you're just like, oh my goodness, this is way bigger than I ever thought it was. Oh, definitely. And I think what's, what's kind of fun about the hands-on part with dogs, and I should say that my journey with that was I graduated from graduate school. I got my first dog and I started working and I wanted a job that would teach me hands-on skills with dogs. I'd already done some assisting in Patricia McConnell's training classes, but then there was a year just because my husband and I moved to New Hampshire for his graduate work. And Tricia was in Wisconsin. I worked, I did a little bit of training, but mostly I groomed dogs for a year. It's not the normal thing you do after getting your doctorate, but I did that and I learned so much and I didn't love it. And I, I wasn't, some people are really artistic and they give dogs beautiful haircuts. That wasn't really my, I mean, you know, deal, but I tended to work with the dogs that were really aggressive, really scared. And it's like, okay, they need to have these mats removed. They need their nails trimmed. They need a trim around their face. But I wasn't giving someone like a fancy poodle show cut. Like if I'd done that, people would have been like, I'm sorry, this is not what it looks like in the brochure. Um, but I did the best I could. And I think that hands-on work is just so um, important. Just the timing. Like I'm always, I've been training dogs for almost a quarter century. And I'm still, sometimes I'll be like, okay, in this context and with this trick I'm working on, like, I really need to focus on my timing. I was a little off there. And I'll sometimes video myself and watch and be like, ah, that's it. I didn't take a step in time, you know, little things. And I'm excited about that. And um, anyone that thinks it's easy has never done it. And anyone that has said they've never tripped over a leash or gotten twisted up in one or, you know, been knocked off balance a little bit, like they just probably really haven't trained that many dogs. I'm not saying those things should happen a lot, but I think like a blooper reel, if we had it, if we videotaped all our training, any trainer, you know, worth her salt is going to have something for that reel. I know I do. And some of them are glorious. Like a couple of years ago, I was like pulled over on an icy patch and I was like, 
it was just epic, you know, it happens. <laughs> yes. I think Chirag Patel just posted a video of him himself walking into a, a thorn bush while he was training a dog. Was... Oh yeah. I mean, and his training skills and his timing, excuse me, are extraordinary. Like, yeah, I'll have to look at that. I do follow him, but I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it's so helpful because I'll do training walks and I take video of myself and I'll watch it back and be like, oh, my timing was off or I should have done this or I missed that. And I try to talk through that in the caption as well. So people can see, and it's, it's not that my skills are bad. It's that my skills are always evolving. And, you know, sometimes like Chirag Patel, we walk into a bush because we didn't see it. It happened. Oh, for sure. I am tripped. I've tripped over training tables before. And I mean, you know, just, you know, things happen. I mean, like it's, I mean, and it's, it's nothing to be ashamed of as long as, you know, we're always trying to improve. Um, And I enjoy that. I think there's a, a lot of room in our social media space for us to say, I'm working on this. This was kind of a blip. And I love being able to take the mind frame of, you know, human error, not dog error. And there are situations where dogs aren't making the best choices. But if we kind of go into it of, wow, this dog is just messing up, then it really takes away the focus off of what we need to be looking at, which is where, where can we help the dog understand and help the learner understand? Oh, completely. I always think it's so important with dogs and kids alike or anyone to to think of the mindset of the dog isn't giving you a hard time. The dog is having a hard time. I love that phrase. We all have things in which we can not succeed. Like it's just hard for us. Like I, myself, everyone has like weird gaps in their knowledge. You know, some people have horrible senses of direction or some people always get right and left mixed up or, you know, some people just really struggle to even like, you know, saute onions or basic things. My thing is I'm not good at financial paperwork. Like not, I'm not bad at accounting, but I'm having to fill out some things for my, my son's applying to college and I'm, I'm filling it out. And I'm like, I am uniquely unqualified to do this in any kind of way. I just don't have the skill. So I have to be walked through it in a very babyish kind of way. And every, and I think if we think of our dogs, that way, like what is hard about it for this? In what way do they need to be walked through in what seems like a ridiculously easy kind of way? Because we all have just glitches. Like whenever they passed out the gene for being able to handle out financial paperwork, like I must've been in a hurry or stayed home that day or something. And, and I- dogs have that too. Yeah, I feel like with financial paperwork, it's set up that way on purpose. I don't know if any, like, I'm sure some people are just naturally gifted at understanding, but I mean, it makes my head hurt. So I totally get that. But yeah, and and realizing that for our dogs, because that's what I've noticed a lot about us humans. And I've done this before as well. We kind of expect our dogs to know the complete English language and how we use it and to know exactly what we want almost from reading our mind. And that doesn't work in any relationship ever. <laughs> You know, right. I think that's so true. It's true for any relationship within species and between species. But something that I think is so wonderfully interesting about dogs is that dogs and people do get along really well. We, I mean, it's not true for every person, every dog, but in general, we do have kind of a rapport for it. And I mean, that's why all the chicken training is so great because people are like, oh, like you think you really want to work on your skills like a dog. Lots of dogs are kind of on the same page with us. They're like most dogs, not all, but most you know, some are super aloof, but in general, a dog is kind of paying attention with you and they kind of want to be with you. And we're kind of on the same team in the general sense, like we're trying to get things done. Like you train some other animals, it's not so at all. Like, I mean, and I agree with what you said, that dogs are not easy, but there are some advantages to working with dogs. I, I feel like training dogs is not swimming upstream. It's, there's a lot of work and there are a lot, there's lots of nuance and there's many skills, but our entire relationship is set up with a high probability of success. Like it's, you know, we are naturally close in most cases. And I love that. Yes. And I do have, I have a lot of clients tell me, oh, you're training me, not the dog. And it's like, yeah, 
dogs are usually working the way that they're supposed to. Sometimes it's us that need a little help, but also too, if there is a misfire or miscommunication, what is happening there and how can we problem shoot that? That's it's very important as well. Agreed. So I wanted to look at some of the books that you've written. So you had an interest in writing when you were very young and you've, you've done the thing. You've done it several times, which is always very exciting. So with your newest one, I really love this. It's a treat everyone like a dog, how a dog trainer's worldview can improve your life. And I, I love this too, because before I became full-time as a dog trainer, I was working briefly as a server and I, I tend to be a little scared of people. And when I was at the restaurant, the manager asked me why, because I'm like, I'm just really nervous. And I was like, well, they're going to be mean to me. And he was like, well, when you walk into a dog training lesson, do you think every dog is going to bite you? And I said, no, because I know what to look for. And he's like, not everybody's going to be mean to you. And I thought that was just kind of like an aha moment for me. So when I saw your book, I was like, that's kind of the idea, right? Of not expecting everybody to be mean to you or realizing that you can avoid a dog bite or learn how to communicate in some really simple and and easy ways. And I love that the first chapter just comes off the bat of just let's, let's be a little positive. Let's be kind. And how can we look at it? And I love the story of your son telling his friend that you haven't yelled at them in five years. How did you come up with this book? Why did you want to write it? What was going on with that? Well, my son, I think was eight when he said that, and he's now 18, the older one. I mean, I've, I've always been interested in people and I've always been interested in dogs. And one time when my kids were, I think they were about, they're a year and a half part, a little more than that. They were like three and two. And I, not a proud parenting moment. And I just want to say not as an excuse, but just an explanation. I was very sleep deprived and, you know, have anyone that's a parent, it's just it's so overwhelming. And, and even though my kids are not difficult kids at all, they're quite easy, actually, just so many challenges. And we couldn't find their shoes. And just, you know, they're supposed to put their shoes in the bin and they didn't. And I was like, where are your shoes? Like, why haven't you, you know, like, they're supposed to go in the bin. And I was yelling at them and my kids got kind of wide-eyed and looked afraid. And I thought, oh my God, I would never yell at a dog that hadn't done what I wanted. I would be like, okay, well, how can we make this work? How can we set this up so that I like, I want them to you know, lie on their mat when visitors come like, and they're not. So how can I set them up to train them, to teach them to do that? And it occurred to me, wow, I should be at least as kind and maybe kinder to my own children as I am to all the, you know, thousands of dogs I've worked with. And it was like at that moment that I, I think the, the idea for the book really began. It's like, I have this whole skill set for influencing behavior and teaching and training with dogs. And yet I'm standing in my living room yelling at these like, you know, toddlers and young children. And I felt terrible. I hope no one judges me. I just, I really, it was a bad moment. It wasn't like I yelled at my kids a lot, but it wasn't like it was the first time either. And so I worked on not yelling at them and thinking like, okay, well, how can I set them up for success? So, but it's not a parenting book, although I do talk about my kids. I talk about all ideas, but it was really this moment that I'm like, I have a skill set. Why am I not using it with people? And I already did to some extent, of course, but in the same way. So it was sort of at that moment that I realized that I had a book in me. And then, yeah, and I, I like that when my kids were like, oh yeah, my parents, like my mom hasn't yelled, like I just don't yell at them. I mean, not to say I'm always like, yeah, you, because sometimes I am like, okay, like this is a problem, guys. <laughs> you know, it's not like it's all sunshine and rainbows and unicorns and roses here, but there's not yelling. And you you delve into quite a few aspects of just, you know, family and everything. And I've had, I've had a few parents ask me if I train kids and I'm like, well, that's parenting. That's not, that's not training, but there are, there are some parallels too and what we reinforce and I love that story of 
the the man on the ski lift with you with the M&Ms and him trying to get his kids to take the turns and you came up with the idea of every you know one M&M for every turn which I thought was was a really cute idea oh yeah definitely and I mean I my youngest son the first time we went skiing he just went straight down the hill and I mean he's really athletic and he was fine but it occurred to me that that was not a good strategy overall so yeah, definitely that. It's a very common parenting thing. Like they need to turn just because it controls the speed. What's so interesting about that man on the ski lift is that he was like half joking when he found out I was a dog trainer. Like, oh, do you have any ideas for this? And I'm like, I do actually. Um, and he was so happy. And one of the things that I've gotten a lot of feedback about this book, and it, it talks about all kinds of aspects of teaching and training. Um, it's not just about positive reinforcement, although of course that's a big part of it. I feel like when people are doing like kind of lost, they have no idea what to do, or they are doing, you know, things that are a little bit aversive or unkind. I'm not talking about true, cruel, abusive people. It's people that are just like, I, I'm yelling at my kids or I'm, you know, punishing them because I don't know what else to do. If they're offered another alternative, the vast majority of people do like it better. They're like, ah, oh, this is like, it's like a relief. People want a way to influence people and raise their kids and train their dogs and interact with their employees or their employer, or their colleagues or neighbors in a positive, happy way. Like very few people are like, no, nope, I'd just rather kind of be a jerk and mean about it. That, that's a pretty rare, that's like frustration. Like that expression in dog training that forces the absence of real power. Like if people are like shoving their dog to get them in the car, yanking on their collar, if they could just say, oh, and have their dog go up, they would do that, but they don't know how to get there. Mm -hmm. And it's really been a nice thing for me to realize how many people who, even people I've seen being, you know, like a little bit harsh, if they're offered another way, how that's embraced by the vast majority of people. And I find that so exciting. It's like people, we all, I can't say we all, because, you know, obviously there's the occasional person that's just not as sweet as we might like them to be, but most people want to be nice. Mm -hmm. They just don't know how to make it work for them always. Yes, and that's a good point to the resources that are available, because when we look around us, everybody's kind of doing the same thing. And then if you start Googling, that's a nightmare, especially when it comes to dog training, because, you know, those methods aren't going to always be the, the first ones to pop up and it's, it's not always clear on how to look for it. So having someone in your life that's like, hey, have you tried this is so helpful to people because where do you even begin to look for it and find it? Yeah, definitely. I, I agree. I, I like being the kind of resource. I have had people say to me sometimes like, wow, you really do take a positive take on things. Like, you know, I'm sometimes almost in a Pollyannish way. Sometimes I can feel that people view me that way, even though I have an edge to me, so it's not complete, but I'm like, well, you know, maybe they were struggling or like maybe they had a really bad day or, you know, maybe they're having a tough family time at home. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. And sometimes people roll their eyes a little bit. I'm like, I'm sorry, that's just the way I look at it. You know, except if someone's really mean to my kids and then I'm like, oh, the horror kind of person is this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you, you mentioned it because your training kind of goes across species too. So reading that story about the teacher's eyes going hard and then having some concerns there was a really another interesting anecdote that you had in there. Yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. I, I um, my kids never even had that teacher, and um, and that teacher was very well liked, and like a lot of people wanted to be in that class. But yeah, when I saw her in the hallway with the eyes go cold and hard, like I've often seen like really aggressive dogs do, I was like, oh, I can't have my kids in that class. I'm, but as I mentioned in the book, I was so grateful <laughs> I didn't have to like go to the principal and be like, the thing is that teacher's eyes went cold and hard, you know, like dogs do. So my kid can't be in that class. And my kids were just never assigned there. So it never came up. Thank God. Because I mean, I think a lot of people in town know that I'm a dog trainer and they know that I often, I, I very regularly say things like, I know that like you have to be careful comparing kids and dogs, but to deny there's some similarities is also kind of crazy. Like, I don't, I don't want to be like considered too nuts, but yeah. 
that was her eyes scared me <laughs> yeah well I mean yeah I, I would feel the same way but that that is interesting because there is even though there we're not the same species there are parallels in behavior and that's why these methods work across species right behavior works the same right yeah the principles of behavior and I mean in some cases like with dogs and humans you know there are a lot of parts of our brains that are similar I mean of course they have an olfactory lobe that puts ours to shame you know but we you know we have you know, similar brain structures and similar brain chemicals, but even with species that are very different, like, you know, the cephalopods, like the octopi, and I guess I'm supposed to say octopuses, and, um, you know, squids are very different, um, insects are very different, but I mean, something I love is knowing that the, there, there was a study a few years ago about male fruit flies, if they're rejected by females, they're more likely to drink alcohol, and it's like, okay, I, that's just you can't help but find that funny. Like you can see the parallels, the idea that some of the same mechanisms are functioning across species that are very distantly related. I mean, all life is related, but very distantly related. There are a lot of similarities and positive reinforcement works for every species because it literally, it's the definition of itself. It, it like makes something happens as a consequence that makes the behavior more likely to happen in the future. It's, you know, it's sort of almost seems like a tautology that if it happens, it happens, it's gonna happen to all these different species if that makes sense. It does. And something I've been really thinking about recently is working with marine animals and hearing Ken Ramirez's story about his process there. You can't force a whale to do what you want. You can force dogs to do what you want. You can't force whales to do what you want. So using these techniques in those big, bold ways is so fascinating to me and how that translates into working with dogs was really, really interesting to watch. Yeah, no, I, I think it's so true. And it's one of the reasons, um, I mean, I live in Arizona, in the mountains in Arizona. So, you know, there's not a lot of marine mammals here, but there are a lot of horse people, people that ride horses. I mean, you know, all over the city. And I love working with people that have worked with horses because just what you say, you can't force a horse. It's like, okay, you know what, if you've got, I mean, even a hundred pound dog, you can like lift and force. I'm not saying you should, but you know, it's like, you can't say to this 2000 pound animal, like we've got to take you here. So I'm just going to shove you in the trailer. It's not going to happen. And I also feel like people that are very familiar with cats are often like, they know that forcing an animal is counterproductive. And I think that's really neat. Laura Monica Trelli and I wrote an article for Clean Run Magazine many years ago now about how working with other animals made us better dog trainers. And it's just, there's so many examples, whether it's, you know, you're working with like a boa constrictor, a hummingbird, or, you know, Madagascar hissing cockroaches or beluga whales and otters, and, you know, which are species that she's worked with those larger ones. I've worked with the smaller ones. I mean, you just, you're all like lessons come from all kinds of places, but marine mammal people, horse people, cat people, really classic examples of people that bring some ideas to dog training that are really helpful. So fascinating. Well, to bring it back around to kids, one of the, the big reasons I wanted to have you on was to talk about, you know, children and dogs, especially when maybe introducing a older dog into your home. Sometimes I, it seems like the trend is to go for puppies because it seems like a cute idea a lot of the time, raising your, your child with a little puppy. Um, and it can be, but um, also puppies are a lot of work. And something that came up with every dog Austin when I had Miranda on was that she says, go to, go to the shelter, the rescue and find the dog that's been surrendered because the family's moving. We already know, we know what's happening, but we don't always have that luxury either. So you wrote a whole book about it. Love has no age limit. Where did, where did this come from? This is a co-write with Dr. Patricia McConnell as well. We had long talked about, well, both of us had given talks to rescue groups at various times. Like I remember talking to Boxer Rescue and Border Collar Rescue and some other ones and and, and at shelters about helping people deal with an adult dog. There's so many books about puppies, but 
especially for those of us that regularly encourage adoption of adolescent and adult dogs, there weren't as many resources. When we started writing this book, we just called it the rescue book, that we wanted to write a book that rescue groups and shelters could hand out with, you know, like, here's your dog, here's your book. <laughs> so we called it the rescue booklet for a long time. And we had various handouts and we had our outlines of our talks and eventually it sort of came together as a book. And actually, this is so funny to me because at one point, I was saying, I really love the phrase, love has no age limit. I was like, I really want that to be in the book somewhere. I want somewhere in our text for us to say, love has no age limit. And she's like, yeah, 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 that's really important. She's like, but I'm, she's like, I'm just so mired in the idea, like we need a title. Like we can't call it the rescue book, but that sounds stupid. And we're like, yeah, we're reading. And she's like, I really want to focus on the title. And I'm like, yeah, no, that's a good idea. And it took us like 10 minutes of this conversation to be like, we have a phrase we want to use. We're very distressed that we don't have a title. We can solve these problems at once. So as soon as it became love has no age limit, we kind of got out of the idea of thinking of it as a rescue booklet and thinking of it's like really just about older dogs. I think we wrote this book. I think it came out like in 2011. It's been a long time, um, but we'd kind of been working on parts of it, at least in our minds for, you know, half a dozen years before that. There is, there is very, and I've noticed that about the rescues and shelters here. They don't, like I'm in Arkansas and people aren't really given what to expect. It's kind of just, here's your perfect dog. Everything's gonna be fantastic. And there's not a lot of breakdown on it. So one thing I've been trying to talk to people about is like the three, three, three of the three days, three weeks, three months, and let them know like, there's gonna be some shifts in behavior. And I'm gonna start recommending this book as well because you really break everything down in a really great way. It's just very accessible and easy to read and just easy to implement, which I love. Oh, thank you. I really like how short this book is. And it has, I'm sure, been criticized for like, well, it's not very thorough, but our whole point was when people get a new dog and they're overwhelmed, we just want kind of a short book. And I think the book is like 85 pages plus some references and things. Um, so it's really manageable um, in that way. And one of the things that was fun about it is we just asked people to submit pictures. So all of the pictures, the dog on the cover, the dog on the back and the dog at each chapter title were just people that had dogs that they'd adopted as adults, rescue dogs. And we just kind of put them in there. I think the dog on the front same Theo and the one on the back is called Pilot, if I remember correctly. And it's just kind of fun. Like when we got so many wonderful pictures, it was so hard to choose which ones to put in. I mean, we could have had 10 times as many and loved them all, but it was just kind of fun to feature. Like these are real dogs that have been, you know, maybe we're not going to end up in the right place. And then someone adopted them and it was good. So I've been talking about like that 333 rule with folks. Has that been your experience of the transition time that there, there is a few months required to settle a dog in and ease them into the new situation? It's so variable, but over the many years that I've worked with dogs, I, I do see those threes. And I learned about those threes from Trisha. And I, I think she's the first one that sort of came up with that idea, but I'm not positive, but I learned about it from her. And I just see that it takes a few days for a dog to kind of be like, oh, this is where I, I am. Okay. That's where the potty is. That's where my water bowl is. And then I feel like at three weeks, you're starting to see who they are. And at three months, you know, you, you, not a lot of changes so much after that, but it's so variable. I mean, there's some dogs that they come in and they're like, yep, there's a tennis ball here. I'm good. And then some that six months later are, you know, especially dogs that have had a really 
unfortunate beginnings in life and are, you know, neurologically and psychologically damaged can take much longer. But I just so often see these patterns of those threes. One thing though, I think that's become so popular in the sort of just our field that, that then people are like, okay, it's been 72 hours. What's okay. Let's, now it's been 21 days. It's like, okay, it's not like that exactly. It's yeah. these are general kinds of things. And it's the same thing, like a lot of, you know, there's variation. So a lot of people, for example, it takes them a couple of days if they're staying in a hotel or an Airbnb to like sleep well. I myself, the first night in a new place, you know, may not get a good night's sleep, but usually the second night I'm good. Other people, it takes them a few nights. There's just variation. You know, some kids go to summer camp and it's like the third or four weeks before they were like, oh, okay, I feel like I like it here. I'm like, what? We're going home already? So it's highly variable for all kinds of individuals. And I love that you really put an emphasis on the relationship aspect. What I've noticed in you know, running a business and then working with so many different people and their dogs is that we kind of have this temptation of like, all right, what are the paths other people have walked and how do I walk in that path for the same results? And the reality is it's your own path and your own story. And we have to be comfortable with that. Like your journey is not the same as Patricia McConnell's journey, even though she's a big part of your journey. Definitely. Well, I think it's so interesting about when you talked about like the emphasis on the relationship and boy, I must say both of these books, you've really read very thoroughly. I'm quite impressed. (laughs) These are really detailed and excellent questions. I love it. In terms of the relationship, I think that, you know, puppies sort of are just a biological thing that at a very young age, some kind of individual in their life, they're going to connect with really quickly in, in almost all cases, that's the normal progression, but adult dogs, I mean, some do you know, there, there is love at first sight with adult dogs and adult people that certainly happens, but they're kind of like, you know, they sort of had the rug yanked out from under them. They might've been astray and then they've been in a shelter. They've been in several homes and they come to your house and, you know, you can imagine them being like, holy crap, like what's going on. Um, so we might've like spent months deciding to get a dog. And then for various really good reasons, chosen this particular one. And we're all set to love them. And they're like, who are you? I don't know you. And even dogs that are friendly and sociable. And once they're adults, that, that, that bond is rarely made quite as quickly. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's kind of abnormal to instantly bond. I mean, that does happen in relationships in various species, but it's not typical. But just to be patient, and we mentioned patience in the book so many times that became a joke when we were writing and it's like, if we say patience one more time, will people kill us? Like it was, you know, it was a lot. Um, So we kept joking about it, but it's so important. Like let that dog, you know, move at his or her own pace. And, and it's really hard because most people, when they adopt a dog, are all set for like their best friend and the love of their life. And if that works out, great. But you can't expect that by Tuesday kind of a thing is the way we view it. Yes. A common phrase I've heard here is that people say in rescue, oh, they're just going to be so grateful that you rescued them. They're just going to be so grateful. And I wonder if that's some appeasement or displacement behaviors that they see and they think is, is gratitude. But it, any good relationship takes time. And even if it is love at first sight, you still have to put the work in and make an effort. Right. Yeah. You might have that love at first sight that builds a connection, but you have to build kind of all the scaffolding to it. You know, I think it's very interesting about this idea about dogs being grateful. I think there are some appeasement behaviors sometimes and some like clinginess because it's like stressful for them sometimes. And that can seem like true love and it might be part of it, but it isn't for sure. I do think though, that there are some dogs, you know, they're puppies and they had a nice little upbringing, you know, um, with, you know, proper socialization. And then you get them at this age and, you know, they just kind of are happy go lucky. I do feel like, and I, I can't prove it. I don't have data. I don't know how you would get these data, but I do feel like there are some dogs that are rescued from not dogs that are truly damaged by horrific situations, but dogs that just, you know, maybe they, they had an owner that was like generally kind to them, but then they come to someone who's like, oh, I'm going to compete with them in agility and I'm going to live on this farm with them and I'm going to, you know, do this. And, and I think there is, are some dogs that 
I don't know if a grateful is the right word, but I sometimes feel like they act like they appreciate it. They know what's out there. Like this seems really good to them because it's not just like, like, oh yeah, life's good. What do you want? Like they, I think mm-hmm. that some dogs know the contrast. I can't prove it. I feel like I'm, you know, could easily be criticized because, you know, how can I know? But I just feel like I've met dogs where I, I feel like that matches their behavior, um, but it's a very vague thing. But I do think the idea that they're so going to appreciate it, like as though they understand they would rescue and they are at risk. I don't think that's the case. I just think some dogs are like, oh, I've been a bunch of places and I like this one and you a lot. Yes, that makes sense. Because I think that idea that every dog is going to be grateful can really set the people up for failure when it's not a love at first sight. And you do have a note in there too about, you know, sometimes love isn't enough. And, you know, not every dog is going to flourish in a home. And that can be a sad conversation to have, but it happens. And I've heard of a few stories here where people tried a dog and they thought it was going to be the perfect thing. And it was really hard and they had to return the dog and they're not touching another dog. And I, and I don't know if ever, but it's like, oh, just because that dog wasn't a good fit for you doesn't mean every dog is not a good fit for you or any dog won't be a good fit for you. Oh, I think that's so true. And I, I don't know why this makes such sense in, for people. Like if people are looking to find their love of their life, like in a romantic sense, like find a partner, they kind of understand that there could be like an amazing person, but it's just not the right match for them. Like I can think of one ex-boyfriend and like, I mean, I think the woman who married him is so lucky. He's fantastic, but he was not the right guy for me, you know, but there's nothing wrong with him. It's just as a matter of we weren't the right match. Um, and that's true lots of times. I mean, that's why most people break up for most relationships, you know, because most people, even if they have a relationship until they die, they've had some before that. And I feel like with dogs, it's that way. Like I had a client a few months ago who they, they chose not to keep this dog. And their issue was the dog was sound sensitive, which they did not know when they got it. And they had a son who was a drummer. And so when they realized that there was this issue, they were like, always have the dog outside or out on a walk whenever their son needed to practice but it just became burdensome. Like maybe the son just wanted to try one quick thing and then it's like, oh, could someone take the dog out? And it's like, oh, you know, it just was not working. And it's like, oh, it's a great dog and it's a great family, but a sound sensitive dog and a drummer, it's not, you know, it's not manageable unless you have a soundproof room, which, you know, is very expensive. And it's like, to me, the perfect example of like, that's just not a good match. And it's, I don't think there should be, I mean, obviously I think someone that has a drummer shouldn't adopt a known, a dog that's known to have sound sensitivity. That's just, you know, that's not, that's just a little, you know, but they didn't know, you know, it just happened. Like within a few weeks, the dog started to really react with the drums. It's like, oh, well, that's not okay. So the dog is in a wonderful home now that's quieter. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so you can, it's not a failure. It's just a transition. And they put a lot of work into trying to make it happen with taking the dog out. But yeah, that's, it can, it, certain things like that can become just too much and that's okay. Right. And I think it made the dog, one of the things I, I talked to them about because they felt some, um, and by the way, they've given me permission to talk about this, but they have felt, you know, some like shame and guilt about it because, you know, they were very loving and caring of this dog. It, I think there was a sense of the, I, I sometimes think that dogs can sense when they're not welcome. Like it was like, oh, we have to take him out because oh, he's going to be drum, drumming and, you know, ugh. and I feel like the dogs can sense that it's like that they're, they can sense that lack of of just welcomeness. Like when someone's like, oh, I'll take the dog out. I think they get that. I wanted to ask you about the child aspect. So your sons are a little bit older at this point. You have two boys, is that right? I have two boys, yeah. Junior and senior in high school. And you adopted an older dog. Let me see. So it was Bugsy? Bugsy, yeah. Bugsy was two and a half when I adopted him. Yeah, and he was just, you know, he had a lot of issues. He was afraid of people. He was reactive to dogs. He guarded treasures. Um, 
he ran away. He was touch sensitive. He was a lot of fun. <laughs> I adopted him when I really wanted to learn about, you know, working with dogs with issues. Did you have children at that point? I did not. And he would not have been the most excellent match for children. And have you adopted an older dog um, with your kids currently, or has that not happened again? I haven't done that. I've, but I, we fostered a lot of older dogs. And so, you know, we'd have them for several weeks or, you know, various times. How did you handle that? So I know that there can be concerns with parents of having an older, maybe a, an older dog that they don't, that you don't know. Puppies seem safe because they're little and you can grab them and stuff. And they don't always have some of the same issues, but an older dog that that's maybe bigger and maybe issues, or you're not sure, how do you handle introducing to children and how do you handle the children around the dog? Well, the key thing is to, you know, set everyone up for success. So the first thing, like any dog that we fostered or dog sat and, this sounds a little authoritarian, but my husband and my kids know quite a lot about dogs and are very dog savvy. I think it's fair to say that I know more. It's my field. <laughs> and so if we like at the beginning of the pandemic, we're like, well, let's foster a dog. It's a good time to do it. And we went to the shelter and we picked some out and like, you know, I was expressing everyone's opinions, but I was pretty clear before we went like, yeah, I'm going to listen to what everyone say, but I'm going to have veto power. And like, it's, you know, like I, I, it sounds sort of kind of like I was being a jerk, but I, I basically, I, I, I was clear in a nice way that like, I was going to weight my opinion more than everyone else's about which dog to take in. Cause I do assess aggressive dogs for a living. So it seems sensible. So, you know, we chose, we made a point of choosing a dog that wasn't going to be as far as we could tell. Like there was one dog that was like, they were telling us like, he, and he was like 110 pounds, like, oh, he's just, we haven't tried him with other dogs yet. Cause he does bark a lot. And I mean, he's just a lot of fun. He'll grab anything and run away with it. And, you know, and like, sometimes you can really see how many teeth he has. It's like, okay, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> that sound like the perfect dog for a family with kids. So, you know, we chose a really nice dog, like a boxer mix and my kids know how to greet dogs. And, you know, we kind of did an assessment first with me, then with my husband, then with the kids, we sat on the floor, we watched what he did. We listened to everything they said. So a lot of it's in the choice of the dog granted, you know, might be easier for me to do that than the average family. And then, you know, really strict rules. Like my kids know, like you can't hug the dog. You obviously can't step over the dog. My kids wouldn't do anything that would be the standard thing, you know, obviously I don't even have to tell them because there's going to be no hitting and kicking, you know, they're just pulling tails or, you know, they're not they're going to do some unkind things. And then it's very much like if anything happens that makes you unsure, back away, you know, be cheerful and happy, lots of treats. Let's start with a walk. So we sort of, it's about choosing the dog and then starting off where the kids don't do anything scary. My kids, uh, you know, you know, had a lot of dog experience all their life and I don't worry about that but it's very common for kids to like charge at a dog or to lie down with their face right by theirs when they're lying down or bother them when they're eating so a lot of it's like a general education of not doing sort of all the you know like let sleeping dogs lie don't bother them when they're eating and then another thing I think that's really important I probably have a different perspective on this than a lot of parents but I know a lot of people want to get a dog to teach their children responsibility and to take care of things I want my children to be responsible and take care of things, but I'm not really necessarily using the dog for those particular lessons. What my interest in having dogs in the house is, is to build relationships. And so like if my kids take a dog, the dog out for a walk, of course they need to clean up after it. But if a dog goes in our backyard, I'm happy to be the one that does it. I'm happy to be the one that takes care of like, you know, kind of the icky parts, cutting their nails, cleaning their ears, um, 
grooming, depending on the dogs, grooming some dogs is fun. Like what I want my kids to do is play with the dog and pet the dog nicely and enjoy time together. I'm not so worried in them getting chores related to the dog, but I know that's different than a lot of parents, but I'm just like, I just want my kids to feel everything positive about dogs and about the relationship, not to the point of where they, I mean, if they're outside and they see a dog go, they should pick it up, but it's not like, like when there's kind of the big cleanup in the backyard, I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to wash leashes, wash dog towels. If there is an accident in the house, I'll clean it up, even if my kids are right there. Um, Cause I just want them to be really happy and positive about the dog. And I think having kids do a lot of cleanup with that can be counterproductive to that. Cause then the dog can become like a burden and not a, a good, it, that can hurt, hurt the relationship. Cause you talked about earlier about dogs. No one's like, oh, we gotta take the dog out, you know instead of like, oh, we get to take the dog out, let's go. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, and well, my husband and my kids are all really fast runner. I'm a runner, but I'm not fast. And there are some dogs that the best thing you can do on a walk is like really run them. Like, you know, I mean, there's this one dog, a neighbor of ours dog that we watch and it is lightning fast. And people are like, Oh my God, how old is that puppy? Cause it's kind of crazy out of control. We're like, he's 11, <laughs> 11 years. He's, um, and um, like, I have video of one of my sons who's, they're both sprinters, like running by the house and the dog is, it's like, he's like skijoring, like it's, uh, what do you call it now? I can't remember the name of the sport when you run with a dog, like can it, can cross, can it cross? Yeah. Um, it looks like that. And it's like, I can't do that because I can't run a sub five minute mile. Like it, I can't do it. So that I'll be like, if there's a dog that needs walked I'm like, I'll ask them like, okay, can you guys just run around the block first before I take them for a walk? I need that edge taken off, but that's pretty fun for them really. Um, and if they, you know, if they say like my ankle's hurting or something, I'd be like, oh, okay, I didn't know. Never mind, you know, because- mm -hmm. Sometimes they have little sports injuries. They don't even bother to mention to me because they're kind of unimportant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they're they're able to communicate with you and let you know, which is fantastic as well. Because I know that can be hard for children or teens to be like, actually, not feeling well. Would rather not. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, I obviously don't know what my kids tell their friends, but generally, you know, we get along pretty well. And I, I often feel like teenagers get a very bad rap, like they're difficult, but I feel like it's almost like there's this expectation that they're going to be challenging or icky in these certain ways and without necessarily realizing why. Like, so for example, it's a really common thing to be like, oh, my kid's like, he just grunts in the morning, won't even say anything to me. It's like, do you realize that teenagers have an entirely different circadian rhythm than adults? Like they cannot wake up. I mean, there's exceptions, obviously there's some morning kids, but like my one of my kids was a real morning kid when he was little, but he's 16 now and like doesn't love getting up in the morning. He does it because he has to leave the house at 7.15. But it's like, I don't expect my kids to be super communicative in the morning because nature is telling them they should still be asleep, but the school is telling them they need to be awake. So like, I don't push those kind of issues. Like I, I feel like I'm trying to be very aware of what they, like what the challenges are. And not to say that it's like no tension between them because I happen to have this thing where like, if people lose things, like if they can't find their phone or can't find their charger, I get really stressed out. And I'm always like, did you remember to pack this? Do you remember to pack that? And I, I feel like my kids will grow up like traumatized. Like every time they pack for a trip, they'll hear me in, 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 in their head being like, did you remember everything? You know, it's like, I realize there are problems, but you know, we all have our different things. But in terms of just what my expectations are for them based on their age and who they are. I try to be respectful about that as best I can. Do you have age specific things that you try to do with, you know, an older dog and a child of different ages? So like maybe the teenager can run the dog around the house, right? But maybe the 10 year old shouldn't do that. Right. And it's all based individually, but I, I sort of tend to have in my mind, these sort of general cutoffs of age, but there's huge variation, but like, I feel like kids like five and under it's like constant supervision and not just like kind of be in the room with them, but really heavily supervised up to like eight or nine, there can be some, you know, a little more independence, but I'm oh, still very cautious. It's between nine and 13 that I think there's the biggest variation, partly because some kids mature 
sort of emotionally and, and mentally, and then some physically. I mean, there are some kids that are like, you know, some girls and even some boys at 13 or 14 that kind of look like men and women. And then there's some like 17 year olds that still look like children. I feel like that the age between nine to 13 is the most risky in a way, because I think it's when people feel like they need the least supervision, but it's still kind of, you know, vague. I feel like all kids really under like 15 or 16, I don't really like to have chase games with dogs. I think bad things can happen to nice dogs and nice children when there's chase. I don't want the kids chasing the dogs. I never want people chasing dogs. Well, I shouldn't say never. There's occasional rare exceptions, but generally never want people chasing dogs because it teaches them to run away. And I don't want dogs chasing kids because it tends to be like turns from a chase to a nip at the heels kind of thing. Tug um, is another game that it's a great game. I love it just like I love chase. I don't really like you know, kids that are under teenagers to be doing it and always sort of with supervision. I think a dog, depending, it's a very size oriented with the dog to be able to be, if they're walked independently, have to make sure they can physically control the dog. Cause I don't want the child to get pulled over and release the leash and have a dog at risk in the street. And I certainly don't want a kid to be like dragged if they don't let go. So they have to be physically strong enough. I mean, there's some dogs and you can see like a 200 pound dog that you could walk with like a finger on a leash and any kid could probably do that, but that's rare. A lot of it's really individual, but I generally feel like it's the kids under five that the constant supervision. And then until they're like mid to late teenagers, they still need to be treated with like certain things they shouldn't be doing. Does that answer your question? It does. It does. Yeah. So there's really no like hard and fast, like this age, do this, this age, do that. But being aware of respecting the dog, right? Not getting in their face, not hugging them, you know, and, and learning some dog savvy things. So I, I have been bringing to my lessons, especially with kids, the dog, doggy language book by Lily Chin. And I oh, love it we go over that and just starting there. Cause I think sometimes it can get overwhelming for people of everything that we should be aware of with dogs. So starting super small and being, and being aware that it's individual is a really great place to start of just like, okay, how do we build the relationship with this person and this dog and then go from there? Um, yes. So that did answer my question and was helpful. It sounds to me like there's just a lot that's variable about dogs and starting just with basic knowledge is a great place to, to begin. Yeah. The variation is pretty incredible. One of the things I like to teach almost all families I work with is to look for like the sign of a tongue flick, because, you know, there's so many things that are so confusing with dog body language, but tongue flicks are pretty common in dogs that have any anxiety. And I think people are really excited. Like once you, I feel like it's one of those body language actions that once you know to look for it, you see it all the time. It's like, you see it everywhere. So just teaching them that one thing, I think often gets people excited to learn more body language. So I often start there. And then, um, so I like kids to be aware of that. I think in terms of the individual aspects of it, it really every dog and, and every every child is different. And one of the things that I find the most alarming is when I go to people's houses, maybe their dog has some issue like house training or um, barking at the neighbors. But And I feel this so common with clients. Um, they often feel such shame about their dog's bad behavior. And I'm like, just throw the guilt out. Like it's not, you know, it's not, per- it's just like, I mean, dogs do what they do. That's why I'm here is to try to make it better. I, I didn't assume when I got here, it'd be perfect. Well, why would you call me? But people often say, as a, as a way of like praising their dog and letting me know their dog has such good things. They'll be like, oh, and the kids can do anything to him. And my first question is always like, what, anything? What are the children doing to him? Because I, I don't want, I mean, there are dogs that just tolerate everything and don't even seem to care, but why should they suffer? And some dogs, it's like, the kids are doing anything and the dog hasn't done anything bad yet. But if you watch the interaction, it's like, oh, it's like a, you know, a time bomb. I feel like I'm just always in the process of educating people 
about it. And I think a lot of people with young kids think that as long as their dog's not pulling the dog's tail or poking it in the eyes, that it's fine. And that's not true. Um, although those things are certainly not fine. Yes. I had a woman named Lauren Haley on to talk about her toddler and her dog and how she manages the behavior. And she noticed her dog getting more nervous when her toddler started walking. And so she had to do some more calming and settling behaviors with her dog. And it was just very, very minuscule of just like you mentioned the tongue flick and then some yawning and some whale eyes, just tiny, tiny little, tiny little uh, signs. That the yeah, dog the subtle had. signs. Yes. Yeah, no, I think it's true. I think a lot of people think, oh, the dog loves the baby and the dog does love the baby because the baby's just like attached to you or lying in a bassinet. But when when the babies start crawling, and I like to do a lot of uh, counter conditioning and um, desensitization to crawling. I've spent many, 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 many sessions with people crawling around on the floor myself and then treating the dog and then working to having it be kids doing that. And I remember when I was like eight months pregnant, crawling around, you know, with, with, with helping this dog that they were expecting a baby too. And I remember thinking like, I starting to get a little bit heavier here. I don't know how much more I can crawl around on this hard floor. <laughs> this might be my last crawling around on the floor appointment until after this baby's born. <laughs> oh, that's very interesting. And that's a good way to get a dog. Yeah. Slowly, slowly conditioned to that. Just a human doing it like a full grown human doing it. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. And one of the things I think is really helpful. And we, I do this also with dogs that have issues with their food bowl or bones that, you know, how you just kind of do like you, you know, take a step towards them or kind of walk by and toss treats. Same thing with crawling. You don't necessarily want to head directly to them. You want to walk by them or crawl by them at first. So that would be like an early step would be crawling by as opposed to crawling towards. Cause I think when dogs, lots of dogs that you know, are a little uncomfortable around toddlers who, you know, move funny and smell funny from a dog's point of view. It's like when it's coming, it's like, they're kind of like <gasps> incoming, you know, and it's very stressful to have a, a baby coming at you because, you know, you don't really know what they don't really understand what they're going to do. And I think for some dogs, if they haven't had experience with toddlers, it's like they recognize them as human, but why are they on all fours? You know, it's weird from a dog's yeah. perspective, potentially. Yes. And actually that was a big thing for me with Dr. Christian McConnell's book, the other end of a leash of just like her discussing dogs don't know that we can change our shape and just putting on a hat or putting on a coat can just like blow their minds because they haven't seen that before. Yeah, definitely. That Yeah. The idea that they don't understand about removable parts, which, you know, explains things like, you know, hats and gloves and backpacks and holding clipboards and things that changing that silhouette. I, I've noticed, um, well, well, I live in Arizona. It's very dry here. And I, I've hair just past my shoulders. And it's like, if I go to Florida, I kind of look like I plug my finger in an electric socket. Like I get really, really big hair in Arizona. I don't, but for years, I always in my house call bag had a ponytail holder just in case some dogs would be like daunted by like the giant size of my hair. And it, again, it's not that way because I live in Arizona and it's quite flat now, which is you know, makes my morning routine a little shorter, which is nice. But if it rained and I went and did a house call, I, I like, I remember scaring dogs. I'm like, it's because I have such big hair. It's like, uh, and I'm a child of the eighties, but does my eighties hair have to come back today? This is awkward. <laughs> oh, so I don't funny. think most people would think of that. Like, oh, my hair is so big. It's scaring the dog. But uh, as soon as I'd put my hair back in a ponytail and the dog would be, it'd be a little easier, which is kind of silly, but there you have it. <laughs> yeah. And it's just also speaking to like, you know, let's, keep the dogs feeling comfortable and safe because that's where trust happens. That's where relationship happens. And that's where behavior can change from. Yes, definitely. And um, I mean, I think in just this general kind of idea of like, let's like give the dogs a break. Something I think that's so important with dogs and kids is that the dogs have a refuge where they can go and the kids aren't allowed to go. Like it can be a crate or a room or, you know, like next to a certain chair, but there's a very concrete rule. If the dog is here, 
we don't get this close. And I've even set up people's houses where it's like a, like a, you know, a dog bed or a mat. And then there's some kind of, you know, either tape on the floor or a rope set up. It's like, you may not come any closer than this and making it concrete with those physical visual barriers is very useful for kids. I mean, you don't need to with a 15 year old. If you're like, like, you know, don't get within a couple meters of the dog. That's fine for a 15 year old. But for a four-year-old, it's like, you may not cross this rope. You cannot cross this tape when the dog goes there. It has to be very concrete. You cannot approach the dog when she or he are on there matter in their crate. I think that giving the dog a chance to escape and, and be safe is really important. Because I think something that happens sometimes with dogs and, and young children and bites or snaps is that the dog is just, you know, just sick of the relentlessness of the, of the children. Even I'm not talking about any child that's particularly relentless, just children in general, because, you know, if they like petting the dog and like to feel the dog's fur, they're never going to want to go away from it. If the dog's trying to rest, they're just going to keep heading towards it. Mm-hmm. So making it really concrete is helpful. Yeah. Cause that's, that's reinforcing for the kid, right? How soft the dog is, how interesting it is to touch. Oh, totally. And I am so sympathetic to this. Like I remember working with a Papillon years ago that was, had a lot of aggression issues, including biting when it was picked up. And part of the problem was that the dog was picked up like 20 times a day or more, like the people love to pick it up. And I was there and I saw this dog and it was so cute. And I literally, it, it took a lot of self-control for me. And I'd been working as a aggression specialist for like at least half a dozen years. Then like, I wanted to pick this dog up so bad, you know? And I remember thinking like, okay, I, like, I know that if I pick up this dog, I'm going to get bitten and it's still hard to resist. It was that cute. And it's not that that, I mean, I love like that breed, but it's not even like, that's the one breed I'm drawn to or something. It's just, this dog was so charming and charismatic and engaging. I was like, oh, this dog's lot in life is going to be to be picked up. If it's, if it's taking energy for me to resist, knowing this dog has a bite history, like who stands a chance? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, you know, and so little kids going to, to wanting to pet dogs, I, I know sometimes people can be like, oh, they just need to stop. It's like, I know, but it's so hard. <laughs> I feel it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, especially when they're fluffy and they're soft. It is, it is really hard. Yeah. Well, Karen, I think that was all the questions that I had. Was there anything else that you wanted to add? I guess I just always want to add that, um, you know, anything that we can all learn about dogs, like, like your podcast, hopefully, you know, all the different ones you do teaches people. And I just feel like as long as people are excited about continuing to learn about dogs, whether they're in professionals or dog owners, I feel like we're headed in the right direction. So it always makes me excited to be a part of that. Yes. And I actually, you mentioned, you know, people feeling shame over you know, situation with their dog or explaining to you actually did a series, a three-part series on embarrassment around dogs for my podcast too. Cause one of the big things I want to point out to people is we're human, right? We make mistakes. It's okay. Even if a dog is not a good fit for you, you can find one that is, you can keep learning and growing and you're going to get better at doing this. The more you learn and the more you experience. And that's a good reminder for myself too, because I, you know, I'm still a baby trainer in a lot of ways, and I know a lot, don't know as much as you, and there's a lot of people I don't know as much as, but that's our journeys, and dog owners are going to be in a a position where it's going to be more challenging for for them because they don't know where to start, so having opportunities like this, the podcast or your books and and everything, it's you're going to get better, we're going to make mistakes, it's okay. Yeah. And I think it's so great. I think um, dog trainers are more and more sharing some of their mistakes, which I think is helpful. Like one of the things I like to say is I many years ago had a dog that was aggressive to other dogs on leash. I used to live on a farm with him, but then when I moved to town and I knew I'd be walking him like neighborhood walks instead of just on the farm. I remember the first day I took him out and he saw like, I forget this guy had like four or five dogs, you know, like a dog walker. It's like, Oh, this is terrible luck. And you know, my dog was like, 
barking and growling and lunging. And, you know, the guy's kind of looking at me disdainfully. And I love to tell clients like I'm a professional dog trainer who specializes in aggression, but I know what it's like when neighbors look at you like, oh, there goes that lady with that dog. And I think just sharing stories like that. And, you know, I mean, obviously I did work with that dog and he got significantly better, but he was never the kind of dog where I could be like, you know, you know, be like walking and looking at my phone and not paying attention. Like it required vigilance till the day he died, just to make sure that like, you know, a dog didn't come running out of the yard at us or he was fine off leash, but on leash challenging. And like, I love to share the stories of when things have not gone well. And I think maybe it's a scientific background I have, but I'm excited about how much more there is to learn and how much more there is to know. Like the, you know, like I, I, the more I learn, the more I'm like, oh, and I also want to learn this. And I also want to learn that. And I'm excited about that. It's not like I'm going to run out of things to learn or anyone would. Yes, it's definitely a lifelong journey and process. And that's what I love about this field too. It's if you're learning, you're never getting stagnant and you're just becoming a better trainer or behaviorist as you go along. Yeah, definitely. I love going to conferences and seminars and hearing something. It's like, oh, I know just the client I want to try that with. So excited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. And uh, and I think most, you know, most people are, are pretty similar in our field. I think it is a pretty, like, I think dog trainers in general are pretty inquisitive and looking to find new ideas in better ways. Yeah, it's, it's super exciting. Where can people find you? People can find me at, uh, on Instagram at Karen London Dog Behavior, and I'm Karen London on Facebook. And then I do have a lot of articles that I've written for The Bark and also for The Wildest. Well, Karen, I'm going to go ahead and do the sign off. Then I have a question for you at the end. This has been Telltale Dog, the podcast with your host, Elizabeth Silverstein, and that's me, certified dog trainer in Central Arkansas, and my guest today, Karen B. London. Music has been provided by Jim Chiago of 7 Second Chance. Find more of his work on iTunes and Spotify, and stick around for After the Music for some final advice from Karen. Karen, before we sign off completely, what is something you wish people understood about considering an older dog for their family? I wish people recognize that the relationship can be just as strong. I mean, I think a lot of people know that there are advantages. The dog may already be house trained. You know what size they're going to be. You know that it's you kind of have a more fully formed individual. But I think there's an old fashioned idea that the only way to truly bond with a dog in a really deep and meaningful way is to get a puppy and have them grow up with you. And I just don't think it's true. A lot of people have had like their one in a million dog, the dog that, you know, the all other dogs are compared to this dog before and after, and that, that the relationship can be just as strong or even stronger, that there is no age restriction on who can really be like the love of your life or your best friend. So adopting adult dog doesn't mean you're sacrificing anything in the relationship. And I just don't think that's as widely thought of. And it's, in my opinion, so very, very true.